0: Fellow citizens of the United States, in compliance with a custom as old as the government itself, I appear before you to address you briefly and to take the oath of office. Apprehension seems to exist among the people of the southern states that with the Republican administration, their property, their peace, and personal security are in danger. There has never been any reasonable cause for such apprehension. Indeed, The most ample evidence to the contrary has all the while existed and been open to their inspection. It is found in nearly all of my published speeches. I quote from one such speech. I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Those who nominated and elected me did so with full knowledge that I made this and many similar declarations. Furthermore, the Republican Party platform contains this resolution. We shall maintain the rights of the states, and especially the right of each state, to order and control its own domestic institutions according to its own judgment. We deem this essential to that balance of power on which the perfection and endurance of our political fabric depend, and we denounce the lawless invasion by armed force of the soil of any state or territory, no matter what pretext as among the gravest of crimes. I now reiterate these sentiments to impress upon the public mind that the property, peace, and security of all parts of the country will be respected under my administration, I add, too, that all the protection guaranteed by the Constitution will be cheerfully given to all the states when lawfully demanded, for whatever cause, as cheerfully to one section as to the other. There is much controversy about the delivering up of fugitive slaves. The clause I now read is as plainly written in the Constitution as any other of its provisions. No slave held in one state, escaping into another state, shall in consequence of any law or regulation in that state be discharged from slavery, but shall be delivered up on claim of the slave's owner. All members of Congress swear their support to the whole Constitution, to this provision as much as to any other. Hopefully, Congress will be able to make laws sufficient to enforce this, as well as all provisions of the Constitution. There is some difference of opinion whether this clause should be enforced by national or state authority, but surely that difference is minor. If the slave is to be surrendered, it can be of little consequence to him or to others by which authority it is done. And should we not enforce this part of the law because of a minor disagreement? I take the official oath today with no mental reservations and with no purpose to construe the Constitution or laws by any hypercritical rules. While I do not choose now to specify particular acts of Congress as proper to be enforced, I do suggest that it will be much safer for all to conform to and abide by all the current laws rather than violate any of them hoping that they will be found unconstitutional. It is 72 years since the first inauguration of a president under our national constitution. During that period, 15 different and greatly distinguished citizens have in succession administered the executive branch of the government. They have conducted it through many perils and generally with great success. Yet with all this scope of precedent, I now enter upon the same task for the brief constitutional term of four years under great and peculiar difficulty. A disruption of the federal union, heretofore only menaced, is now formidably attempted. I hold that in contemplation of universal law and of the Constitution, the union of these states is perpetual. Perpetuity is implied, if not expressed, in the fundamental law of all national governments. It is safe to assert that no government ever had a provision in its organic law for its own termination. Continue to execute all the express provisions of our national constitution, and the Union will endure forever, it being impossible to destroy it except by some action not provided for in the instrument itself. Again, if the United States be not an actual government, but an association of states in the nature of merely a contract, can it, as a contract, be peaceably unmade by less than all the parties who made it? One party to a contract may violate it, break it, so to speak, but does it not require all to lawfully rescind it? From these general principles, we find that the Union is perpetual, and this is confirmed by the history of the Union itself. The the Union is much older than the Constitution. It was formed, in fact, by the Articles of Association in 1774. It was matured and continued by the Declaration of Independence in 1776. It was further matured and its perpetual nature declared by the 13 states in the text of the Articles of Confederation in 1778. And finally in 1787, one of the declared objects for ordaining and establishing the Constitution was to form a more perfect Union. But if destruction of the Union by one state or a few states be lawfully possible, the Union is less perfect than before the Constitution, having lost the vital element of perpetuity. It follows from these views that no state on its own can lawfully get out of the Union. Resolves and ordinances to that effect are legally void, and that acts of violence within any state or states against the authority of the United States are insurrectionary or revolutionary. I therefore consider that in view of the Constitution and the laws The Union is unbroken, and to the extent of my ability I shall take care, as the Constitution itself expressly requires of me, that the laws of the Union be faithfully executed in all the states. Doing this I deem to be only a simple duty on my part, and I shall perform it so far as possible unless my rightful masters, the American people, shall withhold the requisite means or in some authoritative manner direct me otherwise. I trust this will not be regarded as a threat, but only as the declared purpose of the Union, that it will constitutionally defend and maintain itself. In doing so, there needs to be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none unless it be forced upon the national authority. The power confided to me will be used to hold, occupy, and possess the property and places belonging to the government and to collect the duties and imposts. Beyond what may be necessary for these objects, there will be no invasion, no use of force against or among the people anywhere. Where hostility to the United States in any interior locality shall be so great and universal as to prevent competent resident citizens from holding federal offices, there will be no attempt to force obnoxious strangers among the people in order to perform those federal duties." While the strict legal right may exist in the national government to enforce the exercise of these offices, the attempt to do so would be so irritating and so nearly impractical that I deem it better to forego, for the time, the uses of those offices. The mails, unless repelled, will continue to be furnished in all parts of the Union. So far as possible, the people everywhere shall have that sense of perfect security which is most favorable to calm thought and reflection. The course here indicated will be followed unless events show a need for modification. In every case, my best discretion will be exercised according to circumstances actually existing and with a view and a hope of a peaceful solution of the national troubles and the restoration of fraternal sympathies and affections. That there are persons in one section or another who seek to destroy the Union at all events and are glad of any pretext to do it, I will neither affirm nor deny. But if there be such, I need address no word to them. I will, however, speak to those who really love the Union. Before entering upon so grave a matter as the destruction of our national fabric, with all its benefits, its memories, and its hopes, would it not be wise to consider the consequences of such an action? Will you hazard so desperate a step while there is still a possibility that the ills you are trying to escape are not really in existence? The ills you fly to are greater than the current ones you fly from. Will you risk the commission of so fearful a mistake? All profess to be content in the Union if all constitutional rights can be maintained. Is it true, then, that any right plainly written in the Constitution has been denied? I think not. Think, if you can, of a single instance in which a plainly written provision of the Constitution has ever been denied. If, by the mere force of numbers, a majority should deprive a minority of any clearly written constitutional right, it might, in a moral point of view, justify revolution. It certainly would if such right were a vital one. But such is not our case. All the vital rights of minorities and individuals are so plainly assured to them by affirmations and, neg- and negations, guarantees and prohibitions in the Constitution that controversies never arise concerning them. No organic law can ever be framed with a provision specifically applicable to every question which may occur. No foresight can anticipate nor any document contain express provisions for all possible questions. Shall fugitives from labor be surrendered by national or state authority? The Constitution does not expressly say, May Congress prohibit slavery in the territories? The Constitution does not expressly say. Must Congress protect slavery in the territories? The Constitution does not expressly say. From questions of this class spring all our constitutional controversies, and we divide upon them into majorities and minorities. If the minority will not comply, the majority must, or the government must cease. There is no other alternative, for continuing the government is submission on one side or the other. If a minority in such case will secede rather than submit, they create a precedent which in turn will divide and ruin them. For in the future, a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by such minority. For instance, what is to stop a portion of a new confederacy, a year or two hence, from arbitrarily seceding again, precisely as portions of the present union now claim to secede from this union? All who advocate secession are now being educated to the exact consequences of doing this. Is there such perfect identity of interests among these southern states to compose a new union with such perfect harmony that will prevent renewed secession? Plainly, the central idea of secession is anarchy. A majority held in restraint by constitutional checks and limitations and always changing easily with deliberate changes of popular opinions and sentiments is the only true sovereign of a free people. Whoever rejects it does of necessity fly to anarchy or to despotism. Unanimity is impossible. The rule of minority as a permanent arrangement is wholly inadmissible, so that rejecting the majority principle anarchy or despotism in some form is all that is left i acknowledge that many believe constitutional questions are to be decided by the supreme court i believe that such decisions must be binding in all cases upon the parties concerned in the case the court is entitled to very high respect and consideration in all departments of the government at the same time the candid citizen must confess that if the governmental policy on vital questions affecting the whole people, is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court that people will cease to be their own rulers, practically resigning their government into the hands of the Supreme Court. This is not intended to be an assault upon the court or the judges. They have a duty to decide cases properly brought before them, and it is no fault of theirs if others seek to turn their decisions to political purposes. One section of our country believes slavery is right and ought to be extended, while the other believes it is wrong and ought not to be extended. This is the only substantial dispute. The Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution and the banning of the foreign slave trade are each as well enforced, perhaps as any law can ever be in a community so divided over support of those laws. The great body of the people abide by the dry legal obligation in both cases, while a few break those laws. This, I think, cannot be perfectly cured, and the law-breaking would be worse in both cases after the separation of the sections than before. The foreign slave trade, now imperfectly suppressed, would be ultimately revived without restriction in one section, while fugitive slaves, now only partially surrendered, would not be surrendered at all by the other. Physically speaking... We cannot separate. We cannot remove our respective sections from each other, nor build an impassable wall between them. A husband and wife may be divorced and go out of the presence and beyond the reach of each other. But the different parts of our country cannot do this. They cannot but remain face-to-face, and interactions, either amicable or hostile, must continue between them. Will our interaction be easier and more advantageous after separation? Can aliens make treaties easier than friends can make laws? Can treaties be more faithfully enforced between aliens than laws among friends? Suppose you go to war. You cannot fight forever nor over every dispute. And when, after much loss on both sides, you cease fighting, the identical old questions as to terms of intercourse are again upon you. This country, with its institutions, belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. I cannot be ignorant of the fact that many worthy and patriotic citizens are desirous of having the national constitution amended. While I make no recommendation of amendments, I fully recognize the rightful authority of the people over the whole subject to be exercised in either of the modes prescribed in the constitution itself. And I favor, under existing circumstances, that the people take the opportunity. I will venture to add that, to me, the convention mode seems preferable. It allows amendments to originate with the people themselves, instead of only permitting them to take or reject propositions suggested by Congress. I understand there is a proposed amendment to the Constitution, which amendment, however, I have not seen, that has passed Congress. The amendment bars the federal government from interference in the domestic institutions of the states, including that of slavery. I depart from my purpose not to speak of particular amendments so far as to say that, because this is currently implied constitutional law, I have no objection to making it explicit and irrevocable law. The president derives all authority from the people, and they have not given him authority to oversee the separation of the states. The people themselves can do this if they choose, but the executive has nothing to do with it. His duty is to administer the government as it came into his hands and to transmit it unimpaired by him to his successor. Why should there not be a patient confidence in the ultimate justice of the people? Is there any better or equal hope in the world? In our present differences, does either party doubt they are in the right? If the almighty ruler of nations with his eternal truth and justice be on the north side or on the south side, surely that judgment will most competently be made by the American people. By the frame of the government under which we live, this same people have wisely given their public servants but little power for mischief, and have with equal wisdom provided for the return of that little power to their own hands at very short intervals. While the people retain their virtue and vigilance, no administration by any extreme of wickedness or folly can seriously injure the government in the short space of four years. My countrymen, one and all, think calmly and well upon this whole subject. Nothing valuable can be lost by taking time. If there be an object to hurry any of you in hot haste to a step which you would never take deliberately, that object will be frustrated by taking time. But no good object can be frustrated by taking time. Those of you who are still dissatisfied still have the old Constitution unimpaired, and on the issue of slavery, state laws still prevail. While the new administration will have no immediate power to change the Constitution or state laws, if it were admitted that you who are dissatisfied hold the right side in the dispute, there still is no single good reason for hasty action. Intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this favored land are still competent to resolve all our present difficulties. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not attack you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. I am loath to close. We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union, when again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature.